wink. What do I mean by a God wink? Well, it's, it's just one of those things that's extra. It's gratuitous, right? Beauty isn't always functional. I mean, like a, the be- a beautiful flower, right? So there's a function with a beautiful flower, and bees see it on uh, an ultraviolet spectrum. How, how do they know this, by the way? I mean, how, are the bees talking? I mean, scientists that are, you know, examining bees. You know, some bees are, they actually can, can choose uh, stronger strains of pollen and, and deselect weaker strains. They're, they're, they're seeing things on a functional level. But I'm not pollinating flowers, are you? I mean, I, what, what's, what's it, why, is it, why is it pleasing to us? Why the beauty? It's extra. It's gratuitous. So much around us that isn't just functional. It's, it's form that is pleasing to us. But the problem is that we begin to praise the giver. Well, we begin to praise not the giver, but the gifts, right? And we get diminishing returns because we want more and more of the pleasure that comes from beauty. Right? You ever listen to a song over and over and again? Like, you just play it on repeat. Like, yeah, it's a new song. It's like, oh, I love that. What that does. Yeah, that that song makes me feel good. So you listen to it again, and then again. You've done this. Come on. You know you've done this, right? And then after like the umpteenth time, it's like, all right, well, it's losing its luster, right? Diminishing returns. We, we try to clamp down on the pleasures of life and we try to control them and we try to just milk them for everything that they can give us and we get diminishing returns. And we, we begin to just try to manage life apart from God and, and, and just sort of putting the, the gifts over the giver. And so, so instead of, of just consuming God's good gifts, how do we add to them? How do we become part of the creative order? How do we not just suck the life out of life, but add life, become life givers? You know, it, scriptures say that, that Adam was a living soul. Jesus was a life-giving spirit. How do we become like that? This is what Acts chapter 7 is really all about. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, is giving a speech. And he's looking back. He's confronting the, the temple system. People who are just in maintenance mode, who are controlling God's good gifts. The gift of the temple was the the gift of of orderly life and of of flourishing life, of community, of beautiful things, stewarding them, but really just managing them for their own benefit and power and maintaining alone. And Stephen is reminding them, where did all this come from? He goes back and he looks and he, he pulls out key patriarchs and how they, they didn't limit. They didn't just sort of maintain. They didn't just think, well, God is stuffed into this temple. <laughs> but they connected with the giver of the gifts. And as a result, they became life-giving spirits. From the Word of God, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to be reading uh, throughout this chapter, just selected verses. It's very long, but I want you to see these touches on these different Old Testament figures that 
take a risk of being creators. Take the risk of revealing themselves. Take the risk of investing in community. Hear God's word this morning. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia and before he lived in Haran and said, go out from your land, from your kindred and go out to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, but I will judge the nation they serve, he said. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Now, verse 9. And the patriarchs, Joseph, uh, jealous of Joseph, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. See that? God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 20. After this time, or at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. When he was 40 years old, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Then Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Verse 44, our fathers had sent, had, had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make, according to the pattern that he had seen. And Moses said, you stiff-necked people, or actually this, this is a quote of, of Moses, and Stephen is saying this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man 
standing at the right hand of God. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now to receive your word, not only to our minds to understand, but to our hearts to believe that through our lives we may live. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we become adders and not just subtractors? That's, what we're, that's the question. How do we do that? How? How do we become adders to creation, not just consumers of it, right? How do we, t- do, do, how do we find the courage, in other words, to take the risk to invest? Well, by prizing the giver over the gifts. The giver over the gifts. St. Augustine, one of the most brilliant men ever to live, who's, you know, the, the, his theology and his, his writings and his reflections on the scriptures are still benefiting us today. He wrote a book called The Confessions, where he looked at the way he had been living in a disorderly way, where he was prizing the gifts over the giver. And he said this, For there's an attractiveness in beautiful bodies, in gold and silver, and all things. And each other sense has its proper object. Worldly honor has its place. The power of overcoming and mastery. The life also which here we live has its own enchantment through a certain proportion of its own. And a correspondence with all things beautiful here below. Human friendship also is endeared with a sweet tie, but an excessive appetite for these goods of the lowest order, the better and the higher forsaken. Thou, our Lord God, thy truth and thy law. For these lower things have their delights, but not like my God who made all things. What's he saying? He's saying when we, when we make the gifts like the giver, created things like ultimate things, when we invest in them in such a way that says, my life is in these things, we get diminishing returns. We become consumers. We become, we become just living souls rather than life-giving spirits. We become consumers rather than creators. We're not leaving the world better than we found it. We're just sucking life out while we're here. How do we? Become creative, redemptive, and united. That's where we're going. When we prize the giver over the gifts, then we have the courage to invest and to risk, okay? Hear that word, risk. It takes risk to create something. It takes risk to reveal yourself. It takes risk to be in community. Let's take a look. First, the courage. When you, when you prize the giver over the gifts, when you're known by God, when you know God, when you're in pursuit of God, the giver, not just the gifts, you have the courage to create, not just to control what's already, somebody else already passed on to us, but to create, to add to it, to bring life to it, right? You have the courage to do that. It takes courage to create. Verse 5 that I read this long, this long passage. We're going to pluck some of these things out. So verse 5, it says, it says that God promised to give Abraham something. And so Abraham is living by a promise. He's not living in, in the security of the temple courts. 
He's not living even, it said one foot length. He didn't have one foot length of Canaan that ultimately would go to his ancestors. He's living by the promise alone. And that promise, out of that sense of promise and expectation, rose up in him and in the community that formed through his leadership, his faithful leadership. What, what formed? Art, song, poetry, the word. They created. Now, I did a wedding last night, and every time I look at, at these beautiful, fresh faces, these couples, and I, I think of the fact that God is building something new. And I try to challenge them. Something new is happening. God is in his workshop tonight. You are God's masterpiece created in the image and nature of God, but he's putting two lives together. Two are becoming one. You are God's poema, masterpiece. And so... Your fingerprints are to be left on the work that you do and the roles that you play. You see? You're made to create. You're made in the image and nature of God. And so you are creators, not just creatures. And so you are not going to be fulfilled, and you're not going to fulfill your calling unless the uniqueness that is you, your personality and your, your heart, your abilities, your strengths, your experiences... Come to bear on all that you're doing, all the life energy that you have to be poured out into those roles. You're an artist, not just an engineer. I was talking to somebody last night who said, you know, these kids are going to either be artists or engineers, you know, just to help them. If they, they're having trouble making a decision about what college to go, go to, just ask them, are you going to be an artist or an engineer? No. Art, artists need to be engineers, and engineers need to be artists. Anything you do needs to bring all of you into it, and that takes courage. Let me tell you a quick story about this. So one of my favorite books uh, by Oz Guinness called The Call, he tells this story of John Coltrane, who was a famous saxophone player in the 50s. And John Coltrane had gone through this horrible time. He gotten addicted, and he sort of emerged out of it, and out of a sense of gratitude, he wrote this song called A Love Supreme, and one night he played it, and he played it with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and at the end of this performance, he laid down his, his sax, his instrument, and he said, Nunc Dimnitus, which is Latin. Now let your servant depart in peace. You know what that's from? That's a quote from Luke 2. That's Simeon. For my eyes have seen the glory of God. He'd seen the Christ child. He'd seen the promise fulfilled, right? He'd seen it and he didn't have to grasp it. He didn't have to manage it. He was living by that promise. And here is John Coltrane saying, just like, just like Simeon. I was born to make beautiful things. I was born to make this music, and I can't do this any better. He had poured himself out, and he said, now let your servant depart in peace. I love that. Isn't that fantastic? Nunc dimnitus. Said it in Latin, no less. Now, it takes vulnerability to do that, to create something. Not just to maintain what somebody else had put together. Not to just, you know, kind of go through the motions and say, well, you know, this is it. And this is part of what, what Stephen was confronting. He was confronting the religious rulers of the day who 
who saw God and the temple as equal, as the same, one and the same. Their power and their security and their hope and their promise was all in the structure and all in the system. They lost their first love, love supreme. And Stephen is pointing back to where this all came from, God's given gifts. Who's the giver? Are you connected to him? Does he know you? Do you have the courage to build on it, to invest in it, to take the risk to create something in whatever role you're in? Not just in the church, but certainly as part of the church. Your role as husband, father, worker, friend. Your role as mother, friend, worker, daughter. In anything that you're doing. You know, watch, watch these guys hit these little white balls, you know, around Augusta National. I mean, stroke after stroke. I mean, how many hours and after hours after hours of muscle memory to, to get that swing just right? This one guy... DeChambeau, I mean, he hits that thing like a linebacker. He is a linebacker. He can play for the Saints, you know? He's like, he hits that, I mean, he just, I mean, and, and, but, but the dedication to bring everything you are into everything you do, that's a compelling witness that there's a giver behind the gift. Not just reduced to, to some religious cul-de-sac that we go around and around and around in, but everything rendered unto Christ, no matter what you do, whatever you do, do all things, Colossians says, in the name of him who created you. You're creators, not just creatures. So that's the thing. You got to have courage to create. Second, you got to have courage to reveal. And that's what we see in Joseph, the Joseph story. Let's look back at verse 13. On the second visit, I love this. On the second visit, so the first visit, his family came down. But on the second visit, what does Joseph do? What does he do? Verse 13, read it. On the second visit, he made himself known. He revealed himself. There's vulnerability in that. I mean, he was, he was hurt bad. I mean, he was, he was badly abused by his family. And even though he's standing in a position of power, and how much more from a position of power? He, he had the ability to just wipe them away, wipe away that history. He didn't have to reveal himself. And he revealed himself in such a vulnerable way. It takes courage to reveal yourself. But you know, beautiful things get created when we invest in them, like the way that Abraham and, and, and the Psalms were created, Right? I, I kind of skipped over this part, but let me, just, let me just go back to that first point again and just say, you know, the whole Psalms, it, one of the things that, that, that happens is that people have these theories about the Bible, and, and they, um, they build their careers around it. And one of the things that happened in the Ger German Tübingen school was they began to say, well, you know what, the Bible needs to go be under scrutiny in the way that anything else does. And so our scientific reasoning needs to sort of deconstruct the Bible. And so a guy named Wellhausen began to take the Bible apart, just deconstruct it. And began to say, well, this was redacted here, and this was sort of edited here. And, and, and what, one of the theories that they had was that, was that the Psalms were sort of a result of a whimpering, sort of vanquished Israel after uh, an inchoate season of you know, sort of formation in the patriarchs, and then, and then this season of, of, of strength in the, uh, 
in the prophets. And then, and then in the exiles, they, they began to just sort of pine for the old days, and they began to write these songs. And then a guy named Mo Winkle came along, and he said, you know, that's nonsense, and you people that are just sort of intimidating everybody by saying that you're unreasonable and discredited if you don't look at the Bible this way, you actually miss the way that all, all cultures function. I mean, you can drive a truck through the blind spot that formed because somebody's pet theory and ego began to intimidate all of the scholarship around the world. And here comes Mo Winkle, and he's saying, well, I'm just going to say it the way I think it. You guys are a bunch of idiots. I mean, that's what he said. I mean, he just said, y'all have, have totally missed the fact that community came up from the creation and the creativity and the passion and the art and the word and the song and the poetry of Israel. And what Stephen is confronting is after this beautiful season of creation, they just want to manage what somebody else created. It takes vulnerability, it takes risk. And here, too, with, with Joseph, with the Joseph story, it takes vulnerability to reveal yourself. You know, it, it, you know what's easier? It's just to say, you know, mom and dad, everybody is doing this, and so I think uh, I should be able to do this. You know? You know, it, or it, it, you can leverage sort of reason and power, right? Or you can be vulnerable. Those are your choices. You can leverage power in relationships, and you can sort of maintain and control them, or you can be vulnerable. And you can say, this is what I want. This is what I wish. And you can reconcile. You can create. You can reveal yourself and create something beautiful. You see, those are your two choices. Oh, you know what? We use fear and intimidation. Sometimes it's like, well, you know what? This is, you know, here's my case for why, uh, you know, my desire is better than your desire. What I want, my will, over your will. And this is often how we function. You know what? It, it destroys relationships. It, it takes things apart that are beautiful. But when we say, look, I just, I just prefer this. I really want this. Could, could we do it this way? I really want this. You know, there's something vulnerable about that. There's something important that gets recreated when we reveal ourselves. You see, Joseph had been betrayed by his family. And here he's saying, here, here I am. And what happens? The rest of the story? One of the best, one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible. Genesis 50, 20. What you intended for harm, God used for good. What did it take? vulnerability. It took Joseph revealing himself. It took Joseph letting them know, here's who I am. This is what happened. But I'm here. I'm showing up. And I'm ready to put things back together again. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. It takes courage. It takes courage to reveal the real you, what you really want. And not just to use power the way the temple system was using power. This is what Stephen was confronting. That's point two, you see. 
This is where we, you know, you know where we're going here. Now, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. Stephen is confronting the fact that people often use God to run from God. Did you hear what I said? People often use God to run from God. Their religious systems, their pet theories, their, their powerful leveraging of the church, their, uh, their I'm better than you or, I'm, or their social uh, connections or their, their social structure or their moral virtue, right? He's confronting this and he's saying, look, this, this maintains, this, this actually subtracts this kind of power orientation to faith as opposed to the vulnerability and the risk of creating and revealing and reconciling. And finally, finally, his final confrontation has to do with the courage really to connect in community. Over the long haul, when you, when you value the giver over the gifts, right, you actually invest in community. You don't just, you don't just draw from it. You invest in it, and that takes courage to show up, to invest, to connect. The temple does not equal God, in other words. It's the people gathered. It's the people called by his name. The church, ecclesia, means uh, assembly, right? Called out ones. God's called out ones. They're called out from the masses and called together. And there's an identity there, an identity that's bigger than, than all of these buildings that we maintain, bigger than our logo and all of our, uh, our history and heritage. It's bigger than that. You see, that's when you look at verse 32 and you see Moses not daring to look at God, when he comes back into the people and, and, and he sees that they're, they're creating this golden calf, what's, what's Moses doing? He's saying, look, this is bigger than us. This is bigger than something that can be managed. This is bigger than something that can be maintained. God is not living in the temple, but he is condescending to be in our midst, to, to live in our midst. But he's not limited there. Don't lose. Don't lose God in the midst of using God to run from God. You see, th th here's what I'm talking about. What, what do I mean uh, using God to run from God? When I was in college, there was, a, there was something, I kept, a phrase that I kept hearing over and over again. This is the first time I heard it, where people would go to a Bible study, they'd go to a church or something like that, and they'd, they'd come back and they'd say, yeah, it was good and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't get much out of it. I didn't get much out of it. And I kept hearing this, like, yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, they, it's a nice little study, but I didn't get much out of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a new, that's a new Bible church, or maybe it's a new high cathedral church, but I didn't, I didn't get much out of it. I kept hearing this phrase, I didn't get much out of it, I didn't get much out of it. And finally, I got kind of annoyed with it, and I said, well, what, did you put anything into it? Yeah. What did you put into it? Oh, you're there just to suck content, Christian content, right? That's, that's your job? You're not there to add to it. You're not there to take the risk. You're not there to invest. You're not there to connect. You're not there to say, well, what, what, what does God have for me in this? You're not there to, to, uh, to, to reveal yourself and to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here too, and I, this is what I think. I, I mean, did you put anything into it? Or are you just there, the bump on the log? get anything out of it. You know, a wise man can get something out of a fool. You know, a wise, yeah, I, I remember my dad 
um, just the way he would deal with people who would come to the house. They always had something to teach him. It didn't matter if they were crawling into the house, if they were fixing something. My dad was a brilliant man. He, it, he was wise to listen. He invested in relationships. And that's, that's what Moses is saying. It's bigger than us. It can't be. So, so what do we do with this? Here, here is Stephen, martyring himself, confronting people who are using God to run from God instead of taking the risk of creating, of reconciling, and of connecting. Here's Stephen confronting this temple system. So what do we do with it? What's practically? Yeah, but how, right? Last week I said, yeah, but how, right? YBH, yeah, but how, okay? This is great, yeah, but how? Let, let, let me give you just a couple of, of ideas, something you can take home with you. I remember one of our elders in, when we were in a, a mission trip, and uh, there was a dying woman, and we went to visit her. And you know what he did? He was not a very good singer, but he sang her a song. I could get emotional just thinking about how beautiful it was that this man would, brilliant guy, somebody uh, who was kind of a pillar of the community, humble himself in that dingy place, singing a song to her. It wasn't very good. In fact, it was terrible. <laughs> but it was beautiful. He took the risk. When was the last time you volunteered to pray for your family? Just, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say the prayer for the meal. It takes vulnerability, especially after someone just said it, you should do that on Sunday. Now, now, you, now it's going to be really awkward, right? Well, go for it. Go for it. Have you written a letter? When was the last time you wrote a letter? Some of y'all wrote letters to people that are, you know, in a nursing home or at home. You know how revealing it is to write a letter? I mean, some of your handwriting really stinks. You know, you're writing to me, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't read this. You're never going to, nobody's going to ever write me a note again after I said no. That's the point, is that, I mean, when I'm writing a note, I mean, it, sometimes I have to start over, and I'm like, no, just leave it crossed out. This is, this is you, part of you in this. That's the point. Let me read you this final thing, and then. That's Kingfisher's Catch Fire by Gerard Manley Hopkins. He says this. The just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings gracious, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Do you hear that? Acting in God's eye what God eye, God, in God's eye he is. Christ. What are you? Christ. That's your life. Christ. He says this. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in the limbs, lovely in the eyes, not his. To the Father, to the features of men's faces. Stephen is gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, not hoarding what he had been received as an inheritance of tradition. He's creative. He revealed himself. He invested. Even the ultimate price. How about you?